0: Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years, but if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours and spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothing for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire
1: a try and get up to 50% off of their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's A-R-M-O-I-R-E.Style/MurderInTheRain. slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armour today. This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content, listener discretion is advised.
2: Order were a gang of white supremacists turned domestic terrorists. Based out of Washington, headed by extremist Robert Matthews, and fueled by hate, the Order carried off a series of bank and armored transport robberies in an effort to fund a race war and the eventual overthrow of the government. In the midst of their crimes, they carried out an assassination, that of controversial Denver talk radio host Alan Berg, who was executed in his driveway. On the run after a shootout with the FBI at a Portland, Oregon motel, Matthews and his followers had regrouped at the secluded homes they'd rented at Smuggler's Cove on Whidbey Island in Puget Sound. There had been no sightings of Robert Matthews since his November 23, 1984 run-in with the FBI, which saw Order member Gary Yarborough captured and Matthews' hand mangled by a shotgun blast. Matthews managed to slip away from enclosing federal agents, hitchhiked to his safe houses on Mount Hood, and hook back up with his followers. On December 3, 1984, the FBI office in Seattle received an anonymous call informing them that the order was holed up on Whidbey Island. 150 federal agents and Coast Guard personnel were sent there, enacting a dragnet and sealing off the island. On the morning of Friday, December 7, the gang's three safe houses were quietly surrounded by the FBI. Lights and movement could be seen inside as agents prepared to engage with their targets. When they moved in, Matthews opened fire, and a standoff ensued. For 35 hours, Robert Matthews refused to surrender. The feds tried to flush him out with tear gas to no effect and attempted to storm the two-story beach house. His response to the footsteps above him was to shoot at the FBI SWAT team through the roof with an automatic weapon. Changing tactics to keep their people safe, agents attempted to talk with Matthews but negotiations stalled out by 6.30 p.m. on Saturday evening. All non-lethal tactics had failed, so the FBI opened fire, pouring thousands of rounds into the house. They also launched three M79 Starburst flares. The goal of these, besides illuminating the inside of the building, was to have the flare catch the house on fire and force Matthews out. With the house now ablaze and the seven-minute barrage finally ceasing, A surprise fireball rocketed 200 feet into the air after flames reached a cache of explosives inside. Matthews continued to shoot bursts of automatic gunfire at the agents as the structure was consumed, but those shots quickly tapered off and ceased. Once the siege came to an end, Alan Whitaker, a spokesman for the FBI, said, On Sunday morning, agents found his charred remains, confirmed later by dental records, inside the burned-out building. I feel quite certain that he succumbed to smoke, fire, whatever. A letter Matthews penned was later recovered, not sure if it was in the ashes of the home or hidden among his personal items, but the four-page letter titled Declaration of War was focused mostly on the quote Zionist occupation government of North America. Matthews intended to send the letter to major newspapers. After burning down the house with Robert inside, the FBI turned to another one of the properties. They quickly focused on the one housing order members Robert and Sharon Murkey. In their talks with the FBI, Sharon and Robert, as well as George Dewey, had tried to negotiate their surrender. They came out and were arrested. It had been reported that there may have been up to 17 people, some of whom were also wanted for federal crimes, hiding out on the island with Matthews. They faced charges of two counts of making counterfeit bills and for possessing the press and other paraphernalia used in making the bills.
1: I know this didn't last as long, but this sounds very similar to Waco in ways, just like being surrounded and catching the place on
2: fire. Yeah, on a much smaller scale. And yeah, the same sort of defiance and just... But this was
1: way before, right?
2: Yeah, this is 84. I don't remember oh, okay. when Waco was. Is that in the early it was 90s? Early 90s, yeah. yeah.
1: Interesting.
0: It's interesting, too, that they had their making bills. And it's I, very visual for me to like, you know, you watch these movies about behind the mm. scenes and they all have their little business running inside it's crazy that that many people can band together yeah. to do illegal activities yes. like that. We're all willing to make the same risks and yeah. Like, how do you have that conversation to slowly loop people in to do yeah. that? It's always amazing like, to me. Hey, you cool? You could be making money <laughs> and fighting the men. Are you
1: interested in making money? <laughs> if you, you know, know what I mean, literally.
2: A lot of it kind of feels like similar coercive control. Methods as cult, cult. Yeah, yeah, like as a, as something that would just strictly be a a, a cult. I feel enterprise. like
0: giant organized crime in general is very much mm-hmm. similar to yeah cult. the loyalty, mm-hmm. the consequences, the treating you
1: like family, finding people, especially you know because there's been so much talk about these people, you know, white supremacists and things of like that, and how you do find out later it is about wanting to belong and feeling lost and looking for some sort of answer. It's very similar, just instead of
0: religion, it's hate. Or you think about um, like crime mafia movies? Um, like mafia that mama? one I love uh, with Leonardo DiCaprio, Mark Wahlberg. Departed. 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 Oh yeah. It's so how they get them when they're young mm-hmm. to join to join the the family, mm-hmm. and they got their backs, and they give them college money, and they do all these things to just kind of groom them into yeah. that lifestyle. Yep.
2: Also, Matthews he recruited for his group from other groups, so they were already converted mm. he much. didn't
1: have to do as much work yeah Half and also I think they
2: all kind of felt the people that ended up joining the order all felt that the other groups they were a part of even though they were, they were such extreme groups never truly took action like they did that I think that was part of the thing that got them convinced mm. to join the the order. oh so they're like now
0: gonna, now I've learned about it but now I can take action we're on we're gonna it and do, and do this yeah. yeah and we're gonna
2: do this thing that was that's based on that book the Turner Diaries that I talked about in part one I'm sure them being that way that that fantasy like really appealed to them mm. they wanted to live out that sort of comic book crazy yeah. story that, that 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 book delivers. I don't know if we even talked about that but I read that I read that whole book for this. It's it was terrible. Was it? It's was just a, it's a bad book but it's also just so blatant you know. Could you
0: feel like in the right mindset that it could be effective?
2: Oh boy did I ever yes yeah I could it's it's so it's so sort of clearly written and I mean, like, direct in what it's saying, that it allows, I think, whoever is reading it with those leanings to put themselves in those shoes. Because it is, it's about a a guy who ends up being a martyr for that cause, who actually is, like, the the last step in what, like, tips over the government. I see. And um, it's some crazy, I mean, it's so, it's silly. It's, like, it's literally something out of Independence Day, where um, the, the you know, the protagonist ends up getting, I think, a, a nuclear bomb strapped to a crop duster and flies it into the Pentagon. So That's it's just tough. like out of like goofy movie 101. Right. But very but but I think really powerful. Three other members sought on Woodby Island remained at large. Denver Parmenter, Bruce Pierce, and Andrew Barnhill. All were described as extremely dangerous and heavily armed. At noon on December 18th, Denver Parmenter, whose code name was Sandals, was apprehended peaceably at the Midtown Motel in Seaside, Oregon for his participation in the Northgate Mall truck heist.
0: Do we know how he got that nickname?
2: I think they were pretty pretty simple with their nicknames. And <laughs> he I, liked
0: sandals. I'm pretty
2: sure he just wore sandals, yeah.
0: I would have gone with something like
2: Colorado or something. Something, I mean, yeah, Denver, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mile High. Mile High, yeah. Yeah, they, they had horrible names. I don't know if I said it in the first episode that Matthews, Robert Matthews' nickname was Carlos because of a witness description that said he looked like he was uh, Hispanic or Latino. Oh, that's kind of funny, though. Um, what were the other ones? Oh, yeah. I, th- I don't know if I got to that, but Gary Yarbrose was Yosemite Sam. There's a lot of silly names.
0: It's like summer camp.
1: That they what they really want is that they really want a brotherhood. A community, they want yeah. a mm-hmm. community. They want nicknames. They want all that. And for them, it's like the only way that that's attainable is through this route. But it's like, guys, you can just hang out and have coffee or something and talk about... you ever heard of Monday Night Football? Yeah.
2: Parmenter was tracked there by the FBI following a fake name he used and was refused bail due to the eight fake IDs he owned. After these arrests, the FBI was still searching for Bruce Pierce, among others. A report published by the Bureau detailed Pierce's recent evasion of authorities in New Mexico and then a slew of arrests. January 1985... Andrew Barnhill and Richard Kemp were arrested in Kalispell, Montana, while at a saloon playing poker, because this is an old-timey Western. (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) I've never even heard of such a thing. They were both charged for the Ukiah robbery and for having false identification. Four days later, in Boise, Gene Craig was arrested. A week later, Suzanne and Eric Tornotsky were snatched up. All three were charged with possessing money from the Ukiah robbery. On February 15th, Gary Yarborough pleaded guilty to 11 weapons charges, including possession of the Allen Berg murder weapon, the MAC-10. On the 21st, he was convicted on charges related to the assault of FBI agents and sent off to serve his time at a California prison. Days later, Bruce Pierce was seen retrieving a stored vehicle with his brother Greg at White Elephant Storage in Bellin, New Mexico. The 1980 Oldsmobile Cutlass was used by order members to flee Denver after shooting Alan Berg to death, and the title was in the name of an alias used by order member Jean Craig, the wife of Gary Yarbrough. The vehicle had been under FBI surveillance for some time, and the manager of the storage yard phoned the feds as soon as the men retrieved it. When agents arrived 30 minutes later, Greg Pierce was found walking north on the highway and was swiftly arrested. Bruce Pierce, though, had somehow slipped away. Greg Pierce was held as an accessory after the fact in the Ukiah cash truck robbery. Order associate Randall Rader was arrested on March 1st. He was caught using robbery money to open a Mountain Gear store in Ione, Washington. He was paid with robbery money to train members of the order how to handle their automatic weapons, to teach them survival techniques and field maneuvers. He also sold them the Mach 10 45 caliber machine pistol that had been used for the murder. Bruce Pierce, who had slipped away from agents at the car storage, made his way east, getting arrested a month later by the FBI. He'd been caught in Rossville, Georgia on March 26th without a shot fired. March 29th, 1985, David Lane was arrested at a shopping center parking lot in Winston-Salem, North Carolina on federal counterfeiting charges. His capture was sudden. Witnesses said a beige van halted near Lane's truck. As it stopped, Five agents piled out carrying rifles and shotguns. Lane was pulled from the vehicle and slammed against the truck. One agent held a shotgun to his head. A knife and a 45 pistol were found under David's driver's seat. Lane was transferred to custody in Boise to face charges for the Ukiah truck robbery. Quote, Robert Matthews' death had destroyed an essential link to Berg's murder. Matthews had spoken widely about the murder, but for the others, there were no witnesses, no confessions, and no real evidence. Fearing the lack of evidence, prosecutors opted to try the men under the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organization Statute, RICO, which was intended to prosecute organized crime. Twenty-three members of the order were indicted by a federal grand jury on April 15, 1985. Topical. Yes, everything old is new again. Yeah.
1: Been learning a lot about RICO charges.
0: And I was going to say, ah, oh, that's familiar. RICO. <laughs>
2: <laughs> on April 16, 1985, The headline on the front page of the St. Louis Dispatch read, Trooper is slain. Neo-Nazi is sought. The night before, Trooper Jimmy Linegar of the Missouri Highway Patrol and a fellow trooper stopped a van at a checkpoint just outside Branson. Something happened during the stop and the driver opened fire on the men, wounding 35-year-old Trooper Alan Hines with shots to the neck, upper arm, and hip. He would survive. Trooper Linegar was shot four times in his right side, He died about an hour later at the hospital. He was 31 years old and left behind his wife and two children, a 5- and 3-year-old. Parsing the information from the incident, the FBI cross-referenced the name found on the license of the shooter. It was 22-year-old David Tate. He was one of the 23 people charged in the racketeering and weapons charges faced by the members of the order. He was one of the six remaining members who were still at large. It was when Trooper Linegar got on the radio to run Tate's information That things took a turn. The call was returned with news. David Tate was wanted in another state for weapons possession charges. As Linegar started to return to the van, Tate hopped out of the driver's side with an automatic weapon and opened fire. After shooting Linegar, David went toward the back of the van, where he found Trooper Hines. He opened fire again, but Hines was able to leap under the van, from where he returned fire. David Tate took off into the woods from the shoulder of the highway, automatic rifle in hand. By that evening, more than 75 officers were scouring the area. The search wasn't easy. The area was rugged, bushy, mountainous, and wild. And they were on the border with Arkansas. David Tate could be anywhere. All available officers were called in for support. Roadblocks, helicopters, search dogs, and checkpoints were utilized. Six days later, Tate was captured about six miles northeast of Branson in Forsyth, Missouri. It was reported he had been located... Hiding under a bush, dogs tracking him helped narrow down the search area, and once spotted, he came out unarmed. He was arrested without incident and charged with first-degree murder. During his trial, David actually took the stand in his own defense. He said, I feel terrible about it. I cried about it, the it being the shooting of the troopers. At 22, Tate was found guilty and given a life sentence, but was spared the death penalty. Gene Craig, Bruce Pierce, David Lane, Richard Scutari, and six other members of the order were facing racketeering among 66 other charges. This was a way of getting the group on all the crimes they worked together to commit, rather than proving which individual committed which criminal act. Of the 23 defendants, 12 took plea deals, agreeing to take the stand in exchange for lighter sentencing. This was ideal for the prosecution, Which was made up of six federal lawyers and led by Seattle's own assistant U.S. attorney, Gene Wilson. Their plan was to make deals with the smaller fish and have them provide damning testimony and evidence of the crimes to guarantee they could catch the biggest fish. Gene Craig's own daughter, 31-year-old Zilla, started out by testifying that after meeting Robert Matthews, he made it clear the group's beliefs were that, quote, Jews are the spawn of Satan. He also planned to create a terrorist group of Klan and Nazi members. His army would then go to war against what he believed was a Zionist occupation government. The chief of Denver's police investigations team, Donald Molnix, explained to the jury what the order had done to kill Allen Berg, how they stalked him, planned it out, and then pounced. He believed Lane had been driving, Pierce had been the shooter, and Matthews and Scutari had been the lookouts. Most important to the government's case was the testimony of those close to the crimes as well as the word of those who perpetrated them. The best evidence against the defendants would be detailed from inside the order. Denver Parmenter was first. He took a guilty plea and a 20-year medium security prison term for his testimony. He was monotone and emotionless as he spilled the order's secrets and ran down the group's targets on their assassination list. The most prominent on the list were heads of television networks, Henry Kissinger, David Rockefeller, Morris Dees, a founder of the Southern Poverty Law Center, federal district judge William Wayne Justice, and the famous TV producer and creator Norman Lear. Parmenter said the gang's plan if the group was split up or destroyed was to immediately kill those on the list. He also denounced Aryan nations in his statements, calling their tenants a false doctrine, and said on the record he was at peace with himself for the first time in his life.
1: Kind of an interesting self-destruct button there that, oh, if something happens and we get split up, you guys have to go start killing these big names. You know what I mean? It's like not the plan in that moment. So it kind of sets the other guys up like, "Uh uh-oh, so-and-so got caught. You better go take care of Norman Lear.
2: As though Robert Matthews was not okay being the only one to die for this cause. Mm -hmm. He wanted them to go as well. Yeah. He also detailed his role in the July 84 robbery of the armored truck in Ukiah, California and took partial responsibility for the murders. Assistant U.S. Attorney Bob Ward said every Order member took a loyalty oath, holding hands and forming a circle around a small child. That child was supposed to represent the future of the Aryan race. The oath included the vow that members would do whatever is necessary to bring victory to the Aryan race. Ward called the Order's philosophy basically a religious approach to racism.
1: For other groups like the KKK and stuff, those were also kind of founded in Christianity or like used it as that right or or the members were all Christian
2: yeah I I feel like they have names like the holy order of the knights of the cross and things like that yeah
1: so I guess I'm just curious what the difference is that he's saying that this was religious
2: oh you mean like the Aryan nations tenets and stuff like that? yeah
1: that he's saying it's kind of based in religion but it seems like that's kind of always been the case or at least a foundational part
2: yeah definitely is it's definitely um I can't remember the name of it. The white Christian movement or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Aryan nations have their own sect of Christianity that's extremist uh, and racist. Oh, gotcha. So yeah, they they definitely are. I think So they kinda
1: just took it to the next level as yeah. far as intertwining the religion with the hate. Yeah. Okay.
2: By basically becoming terrorists. Right. Yeah. Ward also said the order was found to have visited graveyards to steal the names of the dead for fake IDs. When Allenberg's 60 Minutes appearance was viewed by the jurors, several of them couldn't help but laugh at the man's mad energy and humor. When a videotape of the murder scene was shown, there was silence and tears. The trial went on for 17 weeks, pouring through every detail of the order's activities and wild violations of RICO statutes. There were endless witnesses who detailed most everything I've spoken of in these episodes, so I won't be going any further into it. The 18-month-long investigation by the FBI and the lengthy government prosecution came to a head as the verdict was returned for the remaining defendants. The jury was presented with a 62-page booklet of instructions for determining their verdict, and it took them 50 hours just to go through all of the evidence the state presented. Isn't that crazy? 60 pages of booklet? That's... Yeah. A lot. And, and a, a long instruction from the judge.
1: What are your thoughts on these long investigations? 18 months by the FBI. I always get a little torn. This is why I'm asking. I always get a little torn because on one hand I go, what has happened in those 18 months that could have been stopped? But also you need the investigation so you can go to court and give 60 pages of info and 50
2: hours of evidence. So Yeah, they want it to be airtight. But yeah, sometimes it feels like they're sort of padding out the job. They're yeah. Making it last a, or maybe they you know what? Maybe they do that so that they can say it was. It took us a year and a half to put this whole thing together. That's right. how bad they are. Yeah. Because if you say, oh, we yeah, two weeks ago we arrested all of them, and now we're they're going to go on trial. It's like, oh, there maybe isn't much to this case. Or
1: how much do we think they're going to do? Mm-hmm. So if we stand back a little bit longer, you know, try to catch them in a bigger thing.
2: Oh yeah, to just fully bury them. Yeah. yeah. So I'm
1: always kind of intrigued by that. Of. The pros and cons, I guess, of that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, and,
2: and at the time, there were so many of them that were still fugitives, Well, you know, kind of oh, like, right. you know, that was winnowing down, and there were only like one or two. But right. yeah, that too, I guess, yeah, keep it open and not start the trial without, or one of the many trials without, like, the last dude, that Scutari yeah. guy. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting thought. An interesting note. Fugitive Richard Scutari was finally captured and arrested in March 1986 in San Antonio, Texas. He'd been working and residing at an auto repair shop for six months. Regarding the federal racketeering charges, all of the remaining defendants were found guilty. Bruce Pierce was given 100 years, David Lane and Gene Craig earned themselves 40 years, and Richard Scutari got 60. These sentences were just for the racketeering charges in Seattle. They were still awaiting charges for Allen's murder. Robert and Sharon Murky, who were the last two original members of the order to be sentenced, earned a heap of prison time. Robert, for his hand in the robberies, murders, fraud, counterfeiting, and other charges, received 30 years. Sharon, for the same, got 25. These were the longest sentences for order members who took plea deals. As part of the deal, Robert Murky apologized, saying, this is a good time to express my sincere regrets for the offenses I committed. He was sorry for being drawn toward and motivated by patterns and attitudes that bordered on fanatic insanity.
1: Those are impressive sentences for plea deals.
2: Oh, the lengths of them? Yeah. They yeah. Were huge.
1: I feel like so often we have cases and it's like, well, the other guy who killed that woman, he pl- took a plea deal. So he got two and a half years. And these guys got like 20 and 30 and testified against their people. That's hardcore.
2: I think that, that's what it is, is that there was sort of like all of that testimony just crisscrossed over itself and yeah. made this like airtight Case. And
1: everyone obviously was involved yeah. in like a lot of different things.
2: Yeah, and I don't know if that's I said it. Awesome. Earlier, but Jean Craig's daughter, uh, Zilla, who was a part of all of this, was Robert Matthews' uh, girlfriend or spouse in some oh. some manner. so it was all connected. Robert Matthews sent his mother in law to Denver to Whoa. surveil Allenberg. Yeah, and I think that's part. I think that's why she got such a lengthy sentence uh, as well as because because she did all of that pre planning. The um what do they call that? Well, the pre planning.
1: Yeah, premeditation. Pre- the
2: meditation, yes, the premeditation. After learning they would most likely die in prison, Bruce Pierce, David Lane, and Richard Scutari were still facing sedition indictments in Arkansas. The charges implied the men, along with other members of other groups, were planning to commit sedition via a financial revolution leading to a white nation in the Pacific Northwest. Before that trial could begin, the trial of those responsible for the murder of Allen Berg would take place. This trial and those involved were so volatile that U.S. Marshals guarded the Denver Federal Courthouse to protect everyone just during jury selection. And I read, too, that there were machine guns hidden throughout the uh, the courtroom in case a riot broke out.
1: Whoa, like for officers to grab? Yeah. Ooh.
2: Yeah. This had become a federal case when Denver's DA felt he didn't have enough evidence to nail the group, especially since their leader was dead everything about the case was circumstantial. They would also have needed to hold three separate trials, which would have cost Colorado $6 million then, or about $16 million today. For a while, the murder case was basically dropped. Then the U.S. Attorney's Office stepped in. Since they couldn't get the group on traditional murder charges, they went with the federal restriction of Allenberg's civil rights. The prosecution educated the jury about the order, that the militant group, inspired by the Turner Diaries, had robbed counterfeited, and killed, all in an effort to kick off a neo-Nazi revolution. Even though he had since died in the standoff, Robert Matthews was named as the fifth party in the group that had carried out the murder of Allen Berg. After Robert Matthews was killed, it was believed Bruce Pierce became the new leader of the order. Painting a picture of the shooting, prosecutors claimed Matthews had been a lookout and David Lane was the getaway driver. Richard Scutari was also a lookout and Jean Craig was in charge of stalking Alan Berg for a few weeks before the shooting. She would document and report his daily routine to the group so they could decide the perfect time to kill him. Randall Raider, the weapons trainer and gun seller, took the stand. He testified that before the killing, Richard Scutari and Robert Matthews told him they, quote, were going on a big mission. He was certain they had told him this on June 14th, as his birthday was the 16th, and none of the guys were around for his birthday dinner. Aww. That's so sad. Heck. Oh, Randy. The assassination took place in Denver on the 18th, after the group had traveled from Washington to Colorado. He also testified that when he saw Richard Scutari after the murder, Richard said, your gun jammed on the 13th round. In April 1985, Kenneth Loth, the supposed banker for the order, was allowed to remain out of jail while he awaited trial. This was after he pleaded innocent to the charges of racketeering. He also agreed to testify against his former group. Loft claimed that just a few days after Allen's murder, he heard Robert Matthews tell other order members, we killed the big mouthed Jew. Kenneth, the last witness for the prosecution, went on to say the group had been watching and waiting for Alan Berg at his residence. He later overheard Bruce Pierce say that Berg didn't make a sound. He went right to the ground when he was shot. After three hours of tattling, he was free to go. Well, not free-free, he had been found guilty of racketeering and was sentenced to five years. With the evidence and the sort of all-inclusive federal charge, it was no surprise David Lane and Bruce Pierce were both found guilty of violating Allen Berg's civil rights. They were sentenced to 150 years each, and they wouldn't be considered for parole until at least 2037, 50 years later. This put Pierce at 252 years behind bars and Lane at 190. Fun fact, both could have been eligible for parole at just 10 years if they had been given life sentences. Since it was a sentence of 150 years, they wouldn't be.
1: Good on that, Judge.
2: Yeah, uh, this is U.S. District Judge Richard Match said he gave such large sentences so they couldn't be accidentally released early. Given a terminal sentence, David Lane smirked, and Bruce Pierce stood up and told the judge, I advise you and your court to enjoy your position as long as you can because it will be short-lived. The threat amounted to nothing.
1: As if that judge isn't threatened daily. Yeah. Like, okay, guy.
2: Amazingly, Gene Craig and Richard Scutari were both acquitted of those federal charges.
1: Whoa. Um, I
2: don't know how. And I don't know if I said in the in the first episode that the list of all the assassination targets that they had. Well, they chose Alan Berg because one, he was close. Uh, and two, he was most accessible. I mean, you're oh, not gonna you right. are you can not assassinate Henry Kissinger easily. Right, right.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. He's so, kind of a local celebrity level.
2: Norman Lear is going to be on a studio lot. Yeah. There's, yeah, no. And he was, and Allen Berg was in the phone book. Yeah. There you go. The trial for sedition came and went with a verdict delivered on April 7th, 1988. Initially deadlocked on two counts, the jury returned its verdict in its fourth day of deliberations, acquitting all 13 defendants on the charges of seditious conspiracy. So they couldn't prove that they were trying to. In fact, overthrow the government.
1: Yeah, because that's specifically to overthrow the government is sedition.
2: Yeah, wow. Which we've heard a lot about the past couple
1: years. Again, I don't know
2: if anyone remembers that happening. (laughs) It was a pretty big deal. Weird day. David Lane, Bruce Pierce, and Gary Yarborough died in prison. Lane in 2007, Pierce in 2010, and Yarborough in 2018.
1: You know, we talk so often about rehabilitation for murderers or rapists or, you know, that really direct violent crime. I don't know what the answer is for these guys because, yes, you were breaking the law, so therefore you go to prison. Is that the answer for these kind of people, though? You know, is it helpful to put the same 20 white supremacists that already had a gang into a system that is already full of gangs that are very racially motivated and segregated and all of that? Is that not going to make it worse? It's like, oh, these guys are all working together and have the same ideology. Let's put them all in the same enclosed space in a very different way than other people we talk about. You know, you have like a murderer or a rapist and it's okay, how do we get it to where they're functioning in a safe way? Like just them. How do we kind of break that cycle? It's very different than a collection of people and their ideologies. And I don't know what the answer is.
2: Yeah, because they're not Obviously,
1: just- look around. Thank you for talking about this. It's You're important welcome. to talk about and to know about. We had a siege.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. I, hadn't, I had no I idea. I mean, I
1: was only a couple years old, but to have never heard of it.
2: It was a yeah lengthy case, and there's just so many ins and outs of everything, and there's there's tons more, and there's a book I didn't read called Inside the Silent Brotherhood. I think mm. that's supposed to be excellent, and uh, a review I read of it said there were some really interesting anecdotes inside of it.
1: Oh yeah, what um, was the one you said you saw? You're like, this is why I couldn't read the book. Oh yeah, because <laughs> I would done... put every detail oh, well, in where it.
2: They? Oh, there was one where one of the recruits at the one of the paramilitary training camps they had. Uh, one of them was uh, eight raw dog meat, which oh, I don't know the God. circumstances of, but yuck. And then the second one was that at some point there was uh, uh, one, an incident where the FBI was surveilling the order at a motel and the order were surveilling the FBI at the motel, <laughs> <laughs> they, like across from each other. So
1: that's a really fun visual binocular to binocular. Yeah. What blows my mind is that they were doing all this just through motorcycle books or magazines. Yeah. And they were able to create this massive structure of people. And nowadays you have it in your pocket and it's just reaching you. And the more you look at something like that, if you're like, well, I am a little curious why they hate those people or sometimes I feel those things.
2: Yeah. You could form a group like that over the weekend.
1: Yeah. And it's just it's crazy how many people are. How many people feel comfortable saying that stuff out loud now? Like, oh, well, I'm part of this. Not
2: just not just saying it, but putting like a di- a digital stamp on it. Yeah. To say like for all time I said that on this day at this time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's scary. I don't like social media. It's it does scare me. What are we supposed to do with it? Yeah. Just so much. Merry Christmas.
1: But Southern Poverty Law Center, they are great. My grandpa actually used to do training for them. Really? Uh, Yeah, way back in the day he worked with them uh, because he was a ranger in California or something. And then he became a sheriff Uh, somewhere. I'm
2: sorry, a park ranger?
1: Yeah, he was a park ranger. Well, talk to the, you know, it's the holiday season. You're going to be seeing family that you maybe share different beliefs with. Talk to them about this stuff. That's the biggest thing is having those uncomfortable conversations because silence equals violence. If we're not speaking up, if we're not shutting down those things we hear, then they continue. So no better time than the holidays to say, well, you know what, Uncle Johnny? Actually, we shouldn't say that because here's why.
2: And here's how it's rooted in white supremacy.
1: Yay. It'll make for a great time.
2: <laughs> yeah, you can <laughs> you can uh, discuss it over a wishbone.
1: Yeah. And whoever
2: gets the bigger portion... Their ideology is correct.
1: (laughs) You know, that makes as much sense as anything else. And it'll settle it forever. (laughs) Happy
2: holidays. Happy
1: holidays.
2: Were you out there so long your bush came back? No, I kept it neat and trimmed. Ah, crikey. (laughs) You need to let me make my moves on him.
0: Honestly, just
2: saunter up to him, do like a the we Jamie Lee Curtis work- and True yes. Lies dance. We were-
0: what are you doing in Port Douglas that night? Like, what are you doing you with sh- my
2: hand on your thigh? <laughs> a report published by the bureau detailed Pierce's evasion of story. Can you take in that again? Mexico. You sound a little off. I think I'm a little, a little oh. off oh. there. Quack quack. <laughs> <sighs> After these arrests. I'm sorry, that sounded just like a little fart. It was my mouth. Frank Scutari was captured on February 20th in Port Salerno, Florida. Frank Scutari was at... Frank! Frank Scutari! Don't need it. Don't need it. The 1980 Oldsmobile Cutlass was used by order members to flee Seattle. Uh, No.
1: Murder in the Rain is a cascade media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at rain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls.